0: Hello Forever Student listeners, it's a pleasure to be back. I know you haven't heard my voice in a while, but we have really exciting episodes coming up, including today. We have Joel Vardé, who is a functional nutritionist at Utopia right here in Dubai, and we're going to dive deep into a lot of things health-related. So we're going to jump from nutrition to supplementation to movement to a lot of tips and tricks that are going to help you optimize your health. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. Joel, welcome to the Forever Student.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's such a pleasure. We met, I think, three to four weeks ago. I'm not yeah, entirely sure. Maybe a sure. bit more. Maybe a bit yeah, more at I this point. Five, and uh, and the reason we met is uh, I came in for. Basically, to do blood work. And I was really impressed by the way that you went about the process. Uh, We'll talk a lot more about what you do and about Utopia, which is the clinic that I visited. But I think for starters, it would be super helpful to understand how you got into integrative medicine. Like, where did that journey start? Why did it start? And how did you end up where you are now?
1: Sure. So, first, Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, uh, How it all started, honestly, it was all by coincidence. I had studied the conventional, if you want, nutrition and dietetics at the American University of Beirut. And um, I wasn't really interested into going uh, with the hospital or the really clinical, typical work of a dietitian. So I got an opportunity to work with an endocrinologist in Lebanon who was specialized in functional and integrative medicine. So I started working with him. To be honest, at the very beginning, it wasn't like I was fully convinced, if you want, with this approach, because it was like completely different from what we learn at the university or from what I know from my parents, from other doctors. When was this? This was in 2014, mid-2014. Got it. So I started and then it was something that actually was very interesting to see the impact it's having on the patients that we were seeing with the doctors. So you could see autistic children uh, really improving over month and month. You could see patients who would go to maybe 20 doctors before they come to our clinic and then they would feel like, wow, they they it's as if they didn't learn anything from any of the previous doctors. And I started implementing a few of the things that, I was preaching, if you want, there for me, for my family. And uh, I thought that actually this is something very interesting. So I went into more and more online studies, just like online certifications. But of course, the main experience was with the actual practitioner in, in Lebanon. And then six years later, I moved here and... We started with Utopia. So the whole clinic is based on the functional and integrative approach. Um, What is very interesting about that is that it's not a real, if you want, naturopathic clinic. We're not uh, just dealing with supplements or with diet. Uh, In some cases, when we have to give medications, we will do that. Uh, In cases where we have to do other treatments, we will do that. It's not like it's just through natural uh, treatments or diet, So it's the combination that works.
0: Yeah, totally. What got you into medicine in the first place? Like when you were younger, was it always something that like you were aspiring to be in or was it something maybe that your parents pushed you towards? No, actually,
1: this is a funny story. Like from, I don't know, maybe 10, 11 years old, what I always had in mind was for me to become a pharmacist. Wow. It was like, This is what I want to be. Why a
0: pharmacist?
1: I don't know. It was something that I always liked. Um, I have a brother. He's five years older than me. And then maybe grade nine or 10, he was like, why do you want to be a pharmacist? It doesn't have such a big future. Of course it does, but this is what he told me. And one of his friends was actually studying nutrition and dietetics abroad. So he told me, this is actually something... Like, close a bit to medicine and to pharmacy, but it's more girly and, you know, like something that has a very big potential in Syria, because in Syria, there were like maybe one or two dietitians at that time. And this is how it started. I applied for nutrition and dietetics. I went in, studied, did my internship at the hospital, and then found. Uh, a, a broader way to uh, to actually implement the basics of nutrition through functional and integrative medicine. It. And so, yeah. from
0: all the things that you know now, like all the different fields that you've studied, is there something that you're more passionate about, like or most passionate about?
1: Um, look, honestly, um, of course functional and integrative medicine in general is what I'm passionate about because it almost includes everything. I see patients uh, at the clinic who come for prevention. I see patients who have some very minor issues, but for them, they are considered as issues. I see patients, of course, the more chronically ill who want to see how diet can help. Maybe they don't immediately are coming for just supplements and, you know, like all the changes. Some of them, they just come for a diet. And slowly, slowly I um, teach them or I tell them about other things that they can do other than just diet uh, to help, whether in lifestyle changes, whether through supplements, whether by just maybe avoiding sometimes the use of some maybe over-the-counter medications or things that they're used to, they think were good but actually they have a lot of side effects so this is in general what i'm passionate about honestly the the thing that maybe i hate the most and the just nutrition or dietetics field is preparing diet plans, especially the calorie counting diet plans. Mm. And this is why from the first place, functional and integrative medicine for me was actually uh, really eye-opening because for us in functional and integrative medicine, there's no such thing as calorie counting, you know. it's Why? Because if the matter of weight, let's say, was just calorie in, calorie out, or energy in, energy out, we wouldn't have even have the need to have dietitians or doctors specialized in food or nutrition because anyone would have been able to do it. You know, they would count their calories. They would calculate how much uh, of macros and micros they're eating. They would exercise to make sure they're burning the calories. And then they would all be healthy. (laughs) But this is not the case. This is why you see a lot of people who come to me saying that, you know, we've tried so many diets, we've done everything and okay, maybe I lose a few kilos and then I gain it back. And, you know, so this is like preparing just calorie-based diet is the thing I hate the most. Mm. Preparing customized diets. So whenever a patient is coming just for weight loss uh, at the clinic, of course, I would provide them with diet plans because Sometimes there are things that they're doing wrong when it comes to food. But for me, what I like to do is to teach them uh, how to make the healthier choices, how to maybe have the right balance if someday they cheat, how to balance it out the next day or the the night. Uh, it's not about just, you know, following a very restrictive and strict diet for a few weeks, losing the weight and then going back to the way they used to live. This is not the way to do it for me. And yeah. This is not how I do it actually.
0: I totally agree. And on the food topic actually and on the nutrition topic like I've tried the diets obviously like not for weight loss purposes more for like performance yeah. or for energy or like for things of that nature. Um, but I also never really stuck to it. And I think it's because it's just not It's not foundational, right? Like it's not something that uh, you can do for the rest of your life.
1: Exactly. You feel like, okay, maybe you can do something a bit strict for one week, for two weeks, for three weeks, but then there's life. You know, you cannot just keep on doing that for the rest of your life. And this is why this does not work.
0: Do you help... So two questions, actually. Mm. One is, do you help people understand like what foundational... I want to call it diet works for them. Um, Like, is that something that you help with? And then to add to that, there's a lot of foods that maybe wouldn't agree with me, right? Like, or certain foods that maybe make me gain weight faster than other people or like just are unhealthy for me and better for others. Like, is, do you do a combination of those two things?
1: Uh, definitely. Look, um, of course, first, it, all, it will all depend to the main purpose of the visit of the patient who's coming. But if we're just talking about food, um, of course, we have the food intolerance test available at the clinic. And I'm not saying that it's a must for everyone, but in a, lo- in a lot of cases, it does help, whether for weight, for digestion, for uh, the control of inflammation in the body. So it gives us a good clue on maybe what are the things they should avoid what to focus on more but if there's let's say one thing that i always do is to listen to what the patient has to say when it comes to specific foods like if this person i don't know is bothered by garlic i will not come and tell him to eat garlic at every meal yeah uh, If if Uh, let's say the food intolerance did not show that he has eggs intolerance and he's bothered by eggs, of course we will not keep on eating that. It's just that I think we have to find the right combination between what the functional tests are showing us and what the symptoms or the uh, feelings that the patient will have after specific foods. This is the way to do it. But of course, in general, if we're going to go back to the functional approach, I'm sure you've heard that maybe there are diets or there are certain kinds of food categories that are always advised to be avoided, like gluten or cow dairy. In some cases, we might even go extreme with the paleo diet, where we stop even the sources of carbs that are gluten-free. but like some cereals and grains would be avoided like rice and beans and lentils. Those usually are, if you want, temporary diet that we might choose in our practice. In some cases, whether for um, faster gut healing, for uh, improved energy and performance, for weight, but they're not really diets that I would personally put my patients on for their life. Although maybe there are practitioners that do the same or they practice the functional medicine, they would tell them that this is like the first thing they should do or they wouldn't be even able to continue with them, you know. Mm. I like to make it a bit more convenient and practical. Of course, at the end every person will react differently. Some patients, by just avoiding, let's say, inflammatory foods for four, six weeks, they're able to introduce them again without any issues. Some, it might take longer for them. So it's case by case.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, if if there are cases where you recommend I suppose, like a short term solution when it comes to food, which seems to be the case. I guess, depending obviously on the person that.
1: Depending on the person, depending on the case of the person. And the most important thing is depending on how much the person is willing to do those changes. Because one of the things that um, I try to really um, like convey as a message from the very beginning to any new patient that comes to see me is that I will never come and impose anything that is not feasible for them to do, whether it's diet, whether it's supplements, whether it's uh, exercise, because this is not the way to do it. You know, if it was uh, just a matter of doing something because this is how it's supposed to be, then uh, we can all just open Google, uh, learn more about it, and do it ourselves. But for me, it's more about small changes that would actually make a difference. Of course, in some cases where really, God forbid, we have really alarming tests or it's a very severe case, we have to be strict regardless if the patient is willing to do those changes or not. But whenever possible, I try to be as lenient as possible because this is the way first to really... um, Make sure that the patient is improving. And at the same time, uh, they're not feeling that they're doing something uh, temporary. This is how it will become a lifestyle for them.
0: That's a very interesting topic because I find like habit formation, one of the toughest things for people to adopt. And it's very person dependent. And I also think it's kind of like urgency dependent, right? Like if I know that... If you tell me, like, Stefan, if you don't implement this habit, things are going to go downhill for you and it's really not going to look good in the next, you know, three months already, then it's, like, fear-based, right? So I'm going to do it. But if it's something like, hey, like, if you are going to exercise four times a week, there's going to be a slight improvement in your health, um, then it's not urgent and it's not something that I'm necessarily going to focus on. For you, when you see clients, Mm. like, if you see someone... um, Is is there going to be a differentiation between like what type of advice you're going to give them in regards to habit formation, depending on the client? Like maybe there's one client where it's like you have that feeling that, okay, you know what? This guy or this girl looks like the type of person who's going to stick to this. This type of person, I'm unsure.
1: Definitely. And this is something that uh, I was able to learn by experience, you know, like my seven years experience in this field this is what uh, made me if you want able to read somehow the patient from the very maybe first 10 to 15 minutes you can you can tell if the patient let's say is already on a very healthy diet very le- a healthy lifestyle taking supplements taking care of the food of exercise of sleep everything and they're coming to you of course you cannot be that lenient with them and you cannot tell them yeah it's okay if you do that it's okay if you do that you have to be a bit more rigid or strict exactly for someone who's maybe living 50% of the time healthy 50% of the time not that healthy but they're willing to make the changes of course you will also push them to do more and more for someone who's really coming from a completely different uh, approach or environment and let's say they just came because someone told them to come and they're not really sure what to do, I will never come and tell them everything from the beginning. Of course, as a practitioner, I have the responsibility to tell the the most important things to the patients, but there are things that sometimes you can delay a bit or you can start working on those maybe aspects and then work on the rest. So it all depends on this. And the second factor that plays a role also is whether it's men or women. Because sometimes um, men tend to maybe delay or postpone the appointments to go to see doctors as much as possible. Okay, maybe this is not always the case, but most of the times men tend to wait until they're really sick to do something about it. Women, it's a bit different they come as a preventative approach more or just even if they have hair loss, they would go to many doctors to to fix that. So also this is how the approach differs between men and women because for men, sometimes you cannot immediately tell them uh, all the bad things. Maybe you should start with some things and then tell them about few things that they're doing wrong so that they start changing those things slowly slowly so yeah this well, is how, why
0: do you think us men are like that
1: honestly I don't know if maybe part of the personalities or how men are usually raised maybe to hide egos. their feelings and yeah to 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 really always have everything together don't talk about your feelings don't talk about pain unless it's severe don't talk about maybe this is the way it's definitely
0: it's definitely something that one i think is is becoming a bit more uh normal now for men to talk about their feelings and to talk about our mental health and things like that this is why
1: i told you this is not always the case and i'm it's it has definitely improved over the the past
0: yeah years and it's also very uh cultural right like there's certain cultures the arab culture indian culture my culture and uh, versus maybe other cultures where it's more of a stigma to to show weakness so, and to show exactly. vulnerability. And I suppose when you go and sit in front of a doctor, like you are as vulnerable as it gets, if you allow yourself.
1: This is how it's supposed to be. be but that. yeah, unfortunately, sometimes it's not always the case.
0: Do you, this is a strange question, but like when, do you feel as a, as a female doctor that you get taken differently sometimes that if you were a male doctor?
1: Honestly, personally, I've never experienced that, no. But um, this is something that we hear, yeah, in the Middle East, but personally, I've never experienced that. Like uh, The only thing that maybe sometimes patients might say when they first see me, if they don't know me from before, is that I'm young. It's mm. just because I have a baby face, so they tend to think, you know, like I'm very young. Especially if they've heard, you know, from many members of their families, you have to go see Joel. You have to to go see Joel, and then they come and they're like, "You're Joel, yeah, <laughs> that's me." So yeah, that's the only thing that you know is based on my appearance. Yeah, but no, nothing just because I'm a woman.
0: No. Yeah, but I really liked your approach. Like, so for everyone listening, I went to I went to Utopia, and. um the first thing we did was we spoke about me, basically. Exactly. Like we, we, we sort of dove into like my, my story, my lifestyle, my habits, like if I had any complaints, and it was pretty rigid. I think we probably spoke for like 20, 30 minutes, just, think, to, yeah. just to start off with. Yeah. Um, and I th- it's a very different approach than I mean, specifically like traditional doctors, right? because like from a time standpoint in 15 minutes you're usually out of there. We probably spent like an hour together talking about um, all those things that I just mentioned, and then, and then we went into um, blood work. Right then we did True. we did the blood test. Yeah. Uh, then I came back. We talked about the results in detail, and I think one important thing for everyone listening, and maybe one thing that you can address is like, what's the difference in a regular blood test that people take. You know, at a hospital uh, versus the blood test that I took, which I felt was super comprehensive at Utopia.
1: Look, there are many things that differ, if you want. First and the most important thing, of course, is that it's a really comprehensive test. You know, like nowadays you see a lot of ads of hospitals, of other clinics doing tests, but they're not actually really comprehensive. They might do a few things and that's it. They call it comprehensive. For us, really, it includes everything when it comes to the conventional tests, if you want, so lipid profile, kidneys, liver enzymes, sugar levels, on top of the hormonal profile, so male, female hormones, adrenal glands hormones, thyroid, of course, and all the vitamins and minerals. This is the first thing. The second thing, and this is, of course, very important, is how we read the tests because the difference between, if you want... Conventional or traditional doctors with the functional medicine uh, practitioners is that we have different ranges that we use. And those are called, if you want, the optimal ranges. Most of the conventional lab ranges are just based on statistical ranges. So they're very wide, and you could be anywhere on the lower end or upper end. The doctor would tell you you're okay, but symptom wise, you're not okay. But the tests are showing that you're okay. For us in functional medicine, most of the ranges are much wider so that we are able to detect, God forbid, if there are any issues as early as possible. And at the same time, even if you don't have any symptoms, but we see, let's say, that you're lacking magnesium, you're lacking zinc, uh, you have borderline blood sugar. Those are things that we can work on as a preventative way in order to avoid Any complications later on. So, those are the two things that differentiate. Of course, as you first said, the amount of time that we spend with the patient, uh, whether in the first session as part of the introductory session to get to know you better, to know your main concerns, but at the same time, all your lifestyle, all your habits, your sleep, stress. This is how we are able to actually read and interpret the results in the right way. Because if we just, let's say, see the results without really knowing you, we cannot really pinpoint on what are the things that you might be doing wrong or what are the things that you're doing good, what are the things that we should improve. This is how it's uh, it's usually a, a whole holistic approach, if we can say.
0: Yeah. And then I think outside of that, like you also asked me, you're like, can you please send, you know, pictures of the supplements that you're currently taking? because. And I've had this conversation with many people before, even on this podcast, it's like, we need to understand the quality of the supplements that you're taking. Is it the right magnesium? Is it the right, this is the right that? And and what was also really cool is how you linked things in the blood test. So like when we went through the results, it was like, oh, this is high, which probably means that this is going to be low. And then. Exactly. The whole,
1: yeah, the whole explanation matters, and this again here, of course, um, it differs. Sometimes, not all patients like to know all of those details. Most of them, they do. Some of them just want to know, you know, the summary. So you just give them the summary. But for people like you, for other people who are really interested in learning everything about themselves, we really go into details of each parameter. We link them together. Um, It's also part of the practitioner's job to actually explain to the patient Uh, what tests we did, what they showed, whether it's positive, negative, or just neutral result, we have to discuss it because this is the way the patient is actually able to benefit from whatever tests they've done and at the same time to learn later on, you know, because it's not a matter of just doing the test, taking supplements, and that's it. It's a matter of really seeing the changes uh, in the tests and physically.
0: How how often or... How far in between do you typically recommend blood tests? So if I've taken one, let's say today, and you've, you know, you've recommended lifestyle changes and you've recommended supplements, when's the next time I should come in and do a test?
1: Look, it depends on the findings. In general, if let's say the tests were overall okay, nothing alarming, nothing out of the range... We can just repeat them every maybe four to six months, sometimes every every year if the patient has really been doing the tests over two, three years and everything is okay. In most cases, when we find things, we can repeat it every three months just so that we make sure we are on the right track mm-hmm. and to really know if the changes that we made were doing what they're supposed to do in terms of results in the blood, not just the symptoms of the patient.
0: What are some of the most common findings like like what are some of the most common issues that you see people coming in with?
1: Look, if you want in terms of issues for me personally and for the whole clinic, uh, we have three kinds of categories of patients who usually come. Uh, One, the healthy ones who are not complaining of anything, just doing it as a preventative approach. So they might be the kind of people who exercise, who think they're eating healthy and they want to take a look at all their vitamins, minerals, hormones. And then we have the second category, which is the most common category. And this is usually related to people who are complaining mostly of digestive problems, whether it's IBS, whether it's just bloating, pain, um, gases, whether it's skin or any allergic reactions. And they couldn't find the answers they're looking for, you know, with all the doctors they visited. And they heard about this approach, so they tried it. And then we have the chronically ill, but it's uh, a minority so far, honestly. It's mostly just people with few issues, mostly digestive or gut-related, and just people doing it as a preventative approach.
0: Do you feel like the people that come to you with issues, um, that integrative medicine is that kind of a last resort? Or do you feel like people are now slowly understanding that, okay, like this should be the first option versus going to other doctors? And the reason I'm asking you this is obviously like when you look at like the insurance model, right? Like the first thing that you're going to do is how can I spend the least amount of money True. uh, versus like how can I get the most possible value out of, you know, whatever I'm going to do next in terms of decision?
1: Look, if you want, for when I first started in that field, it was definitely the last resort. So patients would come because they heard through other people who had chronically ill conditions or who had conditions that weren't really being able to treat with the conventional medicine and they would come as a last resort. Maybe in the past two years, I can sense that people are actually choosing to come to do, let's say, the functional tests, even if their conditions are not that severe, or even if um, they just started noticing those symptoms, but they decide to actually try this approach from the beginning. And this is partly because I think now people are more aware of functional medicine in general. Like even if it's um, a new kind of um, approach to medicine, um, it wasn't always that known of. And I think the past few years it has been sorry, it has been more and more um um made uh as a real type of medicine that works, you know. Yeah. Uh thanks of course to social media and to the practitioners that are using uh social media to to help with the awareness. And I think maybe because people are a bit more interested in seeing how this approach would work for them. Yeah. Because at the end, you know, the 10, 15 minutes consultation with a doctor where you go and tell him or tell her that you just have this issue and she would just, it would just prescribe the typical medication. Unfortunately, people are not really maybe trusting it that yeah. much anymore. I
0: think it's also a mindset. Like it's a, we had Tamar Khazi on who's uh, the founder of DISC, mm-hmm. um, which obviously focuses mainly on physiotherapy, but she she was talking about her dad, and that her dad would like just trust doctors blindly. Like he would go to a traditional doctor, they would prescribe antibiotics, and he would just do it right and like consistently. And and she would just get so frustrated. She's like, Dad, it's not you don't need antibiotics exactly. for everything, but it's yeah. just uh, let's call it the old school mindset. Where you've grown up a certain way, your parents have told you like this is the way. This is how it's supposed to be, right? And I guess you just—it's also an open-mindedness, right? Like you need to be open to
1: the possibility
0: that there's maybe something else out there. Like maybe people are now like changing the way healthcare is done effectively. Look,
1: at the end, of course, it's not like conventional medicine is bad. It's not that. It's It's got its place. It has its benefits for, you know, acute uh, acute cases, for injuries, for surgeries. We're not denying this part, definitely. Like, even for me personally, if I have a condition or if someone in my family has a condition and they have to take an antibiotic, there's no joke sometimes, you know. We have to do that. But it's just that... um, a functional medicine is making a bit uh, people more aware and knowing not to really trust immediately whatever the doctor is saying, and that there are many ways things can be improved, not just through this medication or this antibiotic.
0: Yeah. So when you, so you you said the main type of concerns and issues that you that you witness are something like gut health or um, or allerg- aller- allergic reactions or these sort of things. What are like typical common causes that you've maybe put together after looking at? I'm sure there's a very wide variety, but of like I feel maybe there's some similarity between all of these.
1: Look, the most common thing that we find definitely is gut related and it's what we generally call as gut dysbiosis, which is an imbalance between the good and the bad bacteria. But the most common thing that we tend to find is yeast and bacterial overgrowth in the gut coming from previous antibiotic intake, excessive anti-inflammatories, excessive processed sugar, carbs, alcohol. So this is the most common finding. And by simply treating it naturally through natural antifungals, antibacterial, we are able to reverse it. Of course, for some patients it take much longer than other patients, depending on how much there is to clean, uh, how their bodies are detoxifying the toxins uh, of, the, let's say, fungus or yeast or bacteria. Of course, parasites are also very common, but they're not as common as yeast and bacteria, to be honest. But parasites are also Things that we see as part of the gut dysbiosis. In general, as a broad term, of course, leaky gut is there for almost anyone, which is the openings in the intestinal lining caused from also antibiotics, anti inflammatories, binge eating, binge drinking. So, this is also common a lot. The most surprising thing is actually with people who come not complaining of any digestive problems, but with the tests, with the symptoms they tell me about, we can know that they definitely have some gut dysbiosis. And this is where we try to convince them to actually do further testing and investigation to see what is there in the gut. Because this is the way we are able to actually fix whatever issues that are root caused by the, uh, the gut people who come with, let's say, um, I don't know, uh, eczema or skin allergic reactions or acne, Uh, even if they don't necessarily complain of direct digestive problems, we have to take a look at their gut Mm. to see what is there because the skin is the reflection of the gut. Uh, The immune system is the reflection of the gut. So again, people who, let's say, have very recurrent infections uh, tend to, you know, always need medications or antibiotics to treat whatever infection they have. Of course, a lot of factors play a role, like vitamins, minerals, um, the balance of the adrenal glands in terms of stress response. But the gut also plays a role. The gut, if you want, is like the center for for almost all diseases or issues.
0: It's funny that like, it's funny that we're talking about this because. When you look at, you know, typically healthy people, and I'll put myself in as, as an example. Actually, like I went in thinking, like, oh, you know, everything is everything's fine, and and a lot of people like me wouldn't come in for a blood test because exactly. they think everything is okay. But then once you actually test and you're like, oh, like, you know, there's something slightly off with your gut. Like, let's test a bit deeper. Then you start discovering a whole new. World, areas, yeah, of yeah, yourself, that you can ev- effectively fix, and you can feel even better. So I think that's that's one thing that's very interesting. When when we talk about general gut health, what are some maybe general tips that you can give on how to optimize that, Look, or, or things to stay away from? As well.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like there are two categories. If you want, the first thing is definitely um, don't be the kind of person to take antibiotics and anti-inflammatory at the beginning of any symptom, you know, uh, it's not like just because you're sneezing or uh, you have a headache or you're starting to get sick that immediately you go take this anti-inflammatory or antibiotic wait a little bit, uh, try to help with food, try to take natural supplements, things to help, you know, with the improvement of the symptoms because most of the times you might not even need to take it. And if you do take antibiotics, of course, make sure to take probiotics, to eat probiotic-rich foods like fermented foods, pickles, uh, kefir, uh, kimchi. Of course, if you're not intolerant to dairy, you can have yogurt, um, this is one thing. The second thing, of course, is to try to avoid as much as possible the processed sugar and carbs. Because in general, if we have, let's say, a fungus or bacteria, they tend to live or overgrow on the, those uh, processed sugar, processed carbs, so things like white sugar, added sugars, uh, excessive desserts, pastries, Uh, And of course, uh, sugar added to the drinks, so with coffee, with tea or sodas. Um, This is very important. Making sure that you're eating as much as possible, homemade, whole foods made with natural ingredients. Uh, This is very important. Of course, if we want to take it a step further, um, making sure that the animal protein that you're getting is um, not antibiotic and hormone-fed, of course, this will help. Maybe it's a bit more expensive than regular, let's say, chicken or eggs or beef, but this will definitely make a difference because, unfortunately, we're also exposed to antibiotics not just through the oral prescriptions that we take, but through the food that uh, we're consuming. So this is uh, one thing to take into consideration at a later stage. If, let's say, you're the kind to be eating Uh, uh, processed sugar, processed carbs, making the small change in the animal protein would not really make a difference. But if you're the kind of person to really take care of everything else and you're eating, let's say, inorganic eggs and chicken, of course, eating those organic sources will make a difference. It all depends on where you're starting from. Making sure to actually always help your body with the overall detoxification. So uh, taking vitamin C, uh, making sure that uh, you're not overdoing it in alcohol, you're not overdoing it in any kind of, uh, let's say, uh, food or uh, group of foods, you know, make sure to have a variety in the fruits and the vegetables and the carbs that you eat. This is the way to do it.
0: And going a bit further than that, like when we look at, things like prebiotics and probiotics. Firstly, if you could define what those two mean, because I think there's a lot of confusion about what that means. And then secondly, when it comes to probiotics specifically, um, is it something that you recommend for everyone or is it something that you would like? It depends on whatever test results come out.
1: Yeah. So prebiotics and probiotics are both uh, types of fibers that help with the replenishment of the good bacteria in the intestinal flora. So prebiotics are more like, if you want, um, the precursors for the probiotics. Originally, I think probiotics were much more famous than prebiotics, but prebiotics nowadays are like a trend. So Most of, let's say, uh, the probiotics would have prebiotics, but it's not always the case. Of course, you can take pre- and probiotics through natural foods, as we said before, fermented foods, pickles, uh, kefir, uh, sauerkraut. But at the same time, you can take them in supplement form. In general, probiotics, they tend to help any digestive problems like gases, bloating, Uh, In some cases, it can actually make the symptoms worse. And this is in very particular cases of people having what we call SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is the presence of the good bacteria in the wrong place. Instead of being in the large intestine, it's in the small intestine. And this is why some people who take the probiotics and actually feel worse is an indirect sign that they might have this bacterial overgrowth and temporarily they should not be supplementing with probiotics. Or if they want to be supplementing, they have to choose very specific brands that are usually soil-based and not dairy or fermented uh, kinds of probiotics that you usually find over-the-counter. In general, honestly... I would only give probiotics without testing for people who are currently taking antibiotics or just finished taking antibiotics. Otherwise, I would definitely prefer to test to see the actual levels and only give probiotics if there is a need, if there's a deficiency in any of the strains of the good bacteria.
0: How do we know which ones are good and which ones are bad? Because I feel that when I look at the supplement of probiotics, you see... I mean, there's such a huge range, right? Like with any supplement, frankly. Exactly. How do you How do you personally go about understanding quality? Let's talk about probiotics first mm-hmm. and we can go into other mm-hmm. ones as well.
1: Yeah. Of course, first for the probiotics, as you said, there are many brands, many marketing strategies to sell the probiotics, whether in terms of a number of strains or in terms of the potency. So how much... Um, a billion or a million yeah. they have, you know. So ideally, you should first uh, make sure that the brand that you're getting is a trustworthy brand. And this is something that you can do by just reading about it more online, you know. Second, it has to be, A specific kind of probiotic that does not need refrigeration, because most of the times, if you are shipping it from abroad or if you're getting it from from the pharmacy and it's not put at the right temperature, it's as if you're not taking anything at all, because the probiotics are dead. The third most important thing is if you are actually intolerant to dairy product, is to choose ones that are not derived out of dairy, because most of the probiotics that we find tend to have some uh, culture based out of dairy because usually yogurt is one of the most common foods, you know, to have the a good level of uh, bacteria. So this is how they use it um, from the, if you want, to get the strains out of it. But there are many brands available, so just make sure you're getting a trustworthy brand. The ones that don't need refrigeration, if you have dairy intolerance, choose the ones that are uh, soil-based, and then eventually look at the potency. But in general, if you're looking at all of the three criteria that I mentioned, automatically the, the potency is good. Okay. We will not be mentioning brands, but... There are, of course, a lot of brands that, that exist that are very good and they're famous for their probiotics, so you can definitely be using those. In very specific cases, let's say if you've done the stool test and we saw that you're only lacking a specific strain of the probiotic, then you can just go and take this one alone. But most of the times, the probiotics, they tend to have a mixture of many strains you know, mixed together in yeah. one
0: supplement. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, my mom always used to take only acidophilus. And I'm like, mom, I think maybe we should look at...
1: Exactly. Like there are lactobacillus, there are many other strains that are also needed.
0: 100%. When we talk about other supplements, first question is, what are some common supplements that people are typically deficient in? I'm not telling any of your listeners that you should be taking these 100%, but just Generally, like where is the deficiency?
1: In general, vitamin D is one of the very common uh, vitamins that we are almost all deficient in. Um, Of course, the level of how much each person should take, whether on a daily or weekly basis, will depend on the actual level of the vitamin D. But vitamin D is one of the things that I almost give to every patient that I see. Vitamin C is also one of them. Unfortunately, because we're not getting enough vitamin C because of the soil depletion. And at the same time, because of the increased toxicities or pollution that we're exposed to, uh, we naturally have much higher needs of especially uh, in Dubai. vitamin C definitely yeah. So vitamin C, vitamin D are almost uh, the two supplements that I would give to all of my patients. Then we have magnesium, that is actually a very common deficiency. Zinc is also a common deficiency. Uh, so in some cases we will supplement with that. B vitamins, they tend to also be low, especially B12 and folic acid. One, because people tend to maybe eat less and less of animal protein because it's the trend now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and two, because we're not absorbing uh well the the vitamins and the minerals that we're getting from the food that we're eating. So if if we're already not eating enough, let's say animal protein or B12 or folic acid rich food, so we have a deficiency. Then when it comes to, let's say, the overall supplements that we can give for general health one of the most important things that we always tackle at our clinic is related to the adrenal glands. So in some cases, if we have imbalances in the cortisol, whether it's being produced in high levels or produced at suboptimal levels, we might need to add some adaptogen to stress temporarily to help um, make the patient feel better much faster.
0: Well, with that, so firstly, could you define cortisol? And secondly, could you talk about like what adaptogens are?
1: Yeah. So, cortisol is one of the stress hormones, if you want, in the body that is produced with the adrenaline from the adrenal glands. And this is usually produced on a day to day pattern for. The day-to-day, if you want, activities and functions like energy, immune system, control of pain, inflammation, sleep, uh, mood, anxiety. And it's also produced acutely and high levels during stressful events to make sure uh, to, let's say, give the signal to the body to adapt to the stress.
0: And this could be good and bad stress.
1: Exactly. So if it's, let's say, a one-time exposure to a stressful event, it will not have such a big impact on the body. But chronic exposure can lead to what we call the fight or flight response, where the cortisol is produced at high levels all the time. And it can also lead to the opposite, which is the adrenal fatigue or adrenal burnout scenarios where the person is not able to produce efficiently anymore the cortisol. And this is where the adaptogen to stress will help. So adaptogen to stress usually are any type of supplements that will target the adrenal glands in general. So there are ones that would make you produce more cortisol and one that would make you produce less cortisol if you're in the fight or fright response. Most of them, they tend to be uh, based out of Ayurvedic uh, medicine. So we have things like ashwagandha, maca, rojolla. Then there are, of course, the mushrooms, so cordyceps mushrooms. Vitamin C actually is a natural adaptogen to stress, but of course it's not as potent as the rest. So those are mostly what we call the adaptogen to stress, but those are usually very base-to-base uh, uh, cases because it depends on the level and how or what the patient is feeling. This is how we are able to take them. Of course, they're not a must, but those are usually one of the common some uh, some supplements that we tend to give to a lot of patients because yeah. of... The stress, unfortunately, that we're all exposed to.
0: Yeah, totally. Do you think that, like, do you think stress is kind of the main reason for a lot of our current issues, like when it comes to health?
1: Definitely. Look, we cannot say that stress is uh, the only cause, but stress definitely puts you at an an increased risk to Have any condition or to develop any disease or to trigger any disease, but it's not the only cause for someone who is just stressed but leads a very healthy life, whether in terms of food, in terms of lifestyle, in terms of sleep, of exercise, and then they're exposed to stress, it will not have such a big impact. But for someone who already does not have such a healthy lifestyle and they're exposed to stress, of course the impact will be much different. But unfortunately nowadays, yeah, stress is one of the common causes for many issues. I
0: usually it's funny, like whenever I have like stressful events, such as I remember I used to have like my exam period, like last year, my wedding. Um where it's like a phase of, let's call it like either two months or a week or whatever it is of like stressful event. And it could be good or bad stress. Like wedding is obviously good stress. Exactly. But right after, I would always get sick. Yeah. Because I think like my immune system just shuts down. And then all of a sudden, you're like, you're susceptible to get things. Like, I remember the day after, two days after my wedding, I got COVID. Oh. And I don't think I would have ever gotten COVID just because my immune system is at a certain level. Um, but because so, my muscles is shut down, exactly. it immediately got, got impacted. Because
1: unfortunately, cortisol is what controls everything in the body, as we said before. So automatically, when you're exposed to um, per- longer periods of stress, the cortisol that is produced is mostly used just to cope with the stress. And it kind of neglects its other functions. And this is where... The immune system will, let's say, get compromised. You might uh, feel that your pains are more than before. Any weaknesses that you might have would show up more because the cortisol is not able to control all of those uh, parameters in in your body. It's just being used to cope with the stress and kind of ignore the rest of its functions.
0: I wanted to get back to a few of the supplements. Mm -hmm. So we've spoken about vitamin C, vitamin D, magnesium. I want to touch on fish oil a little bit as well, omega-3. When it comes to quantities, I feel like a lot of people undertake a lot of these. And again, like for everyone listening, you know, obviously you need to get tested. You need to understand your levels before you start taking particular dosages. But my question to you is like, is there sort of a base quantity that you should be taking? Because like Vitamin C, for instance, when we had a conversation, you were like, don't be afraid of relatively higher dosages of vitamin C because your body can take it Yeah. versus like maybe, you know, taking too little. Can you speak a bit on that for, I think, particularly vitamin D and vitamin C? C.
1: Yeah, I think those are the only two medications, uh, supplements, sorry, that we can really talk about in general. The rest will really have to depend on the actual levels, especially for zinc, for copper, for the B vitamins, for iron. Those are really targeted based on whatever level you're at. But for vitamin C and vitamin D, vitamin D in general, there are recommendations nowadays, especially in functional medicine that are showing that A daily dose of four to 5,000 IU is what you're supposed to be on. Mm. Uh, For conventional doctors, this is not the case. Conventional doctors, they tend to give you, based on your results, let's say a weekly dose for a month or two months, and then they would tell you to stop. For us in functional medicine, we tend to rely more on the impact of stopping vitamin D, how, what, what let's say, it will cause in the body. So we tend to give more of a daily dose to make sure that you're always getting the amount that you need better than just taking very high dosages and then stopping it.
0: What should should it feel like when you're... When you're going from deficient to sufficient levels of vitamin D?
1: Vitamin D has a lot of functions in the body. So it has a direct impact on energy levels, metabolism, hair, skin, energy, energy definitely, of course, bones and joint pains. Uh, It also helps with hormonal production. This is maybe something that you cannot really feel, but it would show on the test as an improvement. But I think energy, hair, skin, nails, and overall control of, let's say, joint or uh, muscle pains. This is what the patient would immediately feel. Okay. For vitamin C in general, um, again, because the recommendations also are changing a lot, uh, 500 to 1,000 milligram is really the minimum dose that is needed. Uh, For smokers, 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams, this is the minimum amount that is needed. But here, the quality differs. If you're taking bad quality vitamin C, the synthetic ones, or the ones that have added sugars, that have added salt, and other excipients, of course, this is bad. Ideally, you should choose a good form like liposomal or uh, the food-derived ones like acerola, rosehip C, ester C. Those tend to be much safer than other vitamin C. Uh, But in general, what I would recommend is around 1000 milligrams per day. But as we discussed during your consultation, of course, for someone who's about to get sick or maybe not feeling at its best, you can definitely take much higher dosages. And there are actually protocols that are called vitamin C flush protocols, where you can take 2,000 milligrams together at once and then 1,000 milligram every hour for four to five hours or until you have diarrhea. And this is where you know, you know, you've saturated your body and you're able to uh, to stop because you wouldn't need it. Because the only thing that would happen if you're overdosing on vitamin C, let's say, is for you to have liquid stools or diarrhea. Okay. That's it. Because it's not a fat-soluble vitamin. It's a water-soluble. So whatever you don't need, the body will not use it.
0: Let's talk about omega three.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I um, I've been taking it for years, and I'm happy that I have been taking it for years because it seems like a very important part of you know what we need in order to function properly. Could you talk a bit more about its function and also like to clear up for everyone the DH? I think it's DHA and EPA that you find within it,
1: exactly, and yeah. it
0: should be above a certain level. And again, like quality of the supplement is important. Again, getting tested is important. But could you just talk a bit about the function of omega-3 in the body?
1: Omega-3 definitely plays a very important role in um, heart and cardiac protection. It plays a positive role on the balance of the good and the bad cholesterol, the balance of the triglycerides uh, for the hormonal production, for energy, for skin, uh, and There are specific forms of omegas, if you want, not particularly just omega-3, but other forms that are important for uh, hormonal production, especially for women.
0: And it's like a natural anti-inflammatory, right? Definitely.
1: For uh, joints, for pains. Um, There are many forms, as you said, there are many dosages. This will depend on every person's case. Their practitioner can tell them what form to take or what to focus on, whether it's for inflammation, whether it's for skin, whether it's for cholesterol, but definitely the brand matters a lot. So you have to make sure that the brand that you're getting is tested in terms of heavy metal content, because this is very important because omega-3, if it's not a vegan form of it, the omega-3, it's derived out of the fish and with fish, you know, comes high mercury content. So you have to make sure that the omega-3 that you're getting is tested in terms of heavy metals. And at the same time, making sure that the uh, um, the expiration date and the production date are okay. Not just that it's, let's say, not about to get expired, mm. but it's also that it's recently produced because in general, uh, omega-3 or any oils, they can get transit. So you have to Make sure that you're getting a newly produced one, if you want.
0: Got it. Can you talk through what EPA and DHA is?
1: So those are just two forms of the omegas that we naturally have. And one is considered more of um, anti-inflammatory. One is a bit more pro-inflammation. So this is why the ratio is important. But again, it depends. In some cases, we can even go higher with some dosages in some cases no we have to just stick with the usual let's say dose that we got it give. got it
0: a question for i suppose for the more active people mm-hmm. like when you're not necessarily as active as i am where, where i'm doing you know long form cardio and cetera, but just someone generally you know works out three four times a week and and leads a good lifestyle are there any vitamins or minerals that get depleted as a result?
1: In general, magnesium, uh, because it's being used by the muscles and the joints, it tends to get depleted. Um, if you're not eating enough while you're exercising, you might have deficiencies in uh, B12 or folic acid. So this is why this is also important to always check for those.
0: Eating enough, what do you mean by that?
1: Eating enough animal protein okay. when it comes to having one source of animal protein, let's say per meal. So not just relying on the uh, protein shakes or the protein bars or the alternatives to protein. You You need the actual animal protein when you exercise regularly, even if you're not really preparing for a competition or you're not exercising on a daily basis. On the days where you exercise, you have to make sure that you're eating enough animal protein. At the same time, making sure that you're taking enough electrolytes and replenishing uh, the minerals that can be lost through sweat. Those usually, you don't really have to test for them to take them. You can just, on the days where you're exercising, make sure to, of course, drink first enough water and you can add electrolytes or just add salt to it uh, to, to improve with the electrolytes replenishment. But definitely magnesium, B vitamins, vitamin C are... The most important mm, ones.
0: Yeah, the, the electrolytes is something I'm very passionate about, and like people have heard me talk about this a lot because the, the water here, specifically, like the bottled plastic water, doesn't really contain the electrolytes we need. So potassium, sodium, magnesium, etc. True. Um, I I started taking a product called Element, which is for a lot of people very high in sodium. Yeah, like it's a thousand mg. Um, not
1: everyone can. Not
0: everyone can and not everyone should. Like, what's your take on salt and sodium? Like, specifically when you look at dosages, because I, like, you hear it from everyone. Everyone has sort of a different opinion on this, where, um, you know, I've heard, I think it's Joe Rogan speak about this, where he, like, he wakes up in the morning, puts a bit of, uh, what is it? not sea salt, um, Himalayan, Himalayan salt in his water and, you know, just to rehydrate and stuff like that. For you, is there like a specific thing that you maybe personally follow in terms of salt?
1: Look, um, in general, uh, salt, when it comes to its natural forms, if you want, so in Himalayan salt or sea salt, um, adding it to your water or adding it to your food doesn't have any side effects, but relying on... um, High salty foods or high sodium foods because of the processing. So, in things like cold cuts or uh, baked items or uh, pickles that are not homemade, all of that, of course, this is bad. So, here we're just going to be talking about the natural salts that we usually use. And of course, for someone who doesn't have any problems with blood pressure, you should be adding a little bit of salt, whether to the water or if you, let's say, don't exercise, you don't really sweat a lot, you can just make sure to add a bit of salt for to every meal because it has a positive impact on the adrenal glands and how your body is coping with uh, stress. So from this side, it's definitely important, even if you don't exercise. If you exercise regularly, you sweat, especially when it's really hot here in Dubai, you definitely have to uh, to add the salt in your water in the morning or eventually take the electrolytes. But here, the dose of how, like how many milligrams you should be taking of sodium will depend on how much you're exercising, how much you're sweating, your uh, blood pressure, and all of that. But yeah. it has a lot of benefits. It's not as bad as we think salt is.
0: Yeah, and it's and it's funny because I can't believe I only recently realized this. Like when you sweat, you, I mean, you're sweating out salt, right? And you need to replenish that. So like, how do you replenish that? It's like putting salt in your body and the water that we currently drink, especially the filtered water. It doesn't really have the right amount They're of sodium in it. So you need to replenish that. And unfortunately, yeah, like you can't eat and have a bad diet and then you know, add salt into your water and whatever else. Like, ideally, you just focus on the latter and improve the former.
1: So sorry, you were asking me personally what I do Mm. uh, in regards to salt. Honestly, unfortunately, I don't exercise as regularly as I would like to because of my lifestyle and my work. But uh, of course, with time, I've learned the importance of adding salt to my foods. I was the kind to never add salt just because I don't like it. You know, it's not that uh, I have any issues with it but out of habit you know no salt okay no need to add salt to my food but the past two three years I'm just making sure to add salt to my actual food but I don't necessarily always take it in water or in electrolytes because unfortunately I don't exercise as much as I would like to
0: what type of exercise do you enjoy
1: (laughs) Generally, I like more of the functional kinds of exercise. So things that focus, you know, on your body weight, um, not necessarily, you know, the circuit training and the, those kinds of yeah exercises, more like the things that you can do at home by yourself. You know, like I have a friend who's a PT. She always sends me uh, stuff to do at home. My husband is... Very athletic, so he's the one during COVID who really was pushing me to keep on exercising. We were in Lebanon back then, so we created, you know, our own routine of exercise at home on a daily basis. Now it's mostly like gym, maybe once a week and a bit of home exercises, but nothing uh, in particular. Yoga and Pilates, I definitely uh, would like to incorporate them more. And yeah. hopefully I will do that soon. But yeah, uh,
0: we just had on uh, the founder of Drip, which is a yoga studio here. And uh, and and she was like, you have to come and do the hot yoga. Just because like one, you're getting that, I guess, like sauna experience, right? Yeah, which has its benefits. A, lo- a lot of benefits.
1: Yeah. And,
0: then, and then doing some sort of movement, which one, strengthens and activates and two, like just releases all the tension in your body. Like a combination of that is... It's really good. It's yeah. Something I'm definitely going to try. It's funny that we spoke about COVID. They just mentioned COVID because I think in COVID, like people went either one of two ways.
1: Exactly. They either either this extreme, n-
0: none, like zero, or you went like every single day. Um,
1: exactly. I think COVID actually played a positive role in a lot of aspects, even if it was an unfortunate event and the the, the whole two years or three years were really hard on almost everyone. But... I think it showed a bit of the importance of having a healthy lifestyle, of eating well, of um, not always just uh, prioritizing your work and, you know, your, of course, work is very important. But I mean, in some cases, you know, if you had a job that required you to be at the office from nine till six and uh, one day per week break and then COVID came and you started working from home and saw, you know, how, you can actually do a lot of things at the same time and still be uh, um, very good at your job. So yeah,
0: yeah, and I think also like like relationships, right? Like family relationships. Like I spent a lot of my time during COVID with like my parents and my sister outside of just with my wife. So like that was something where all of us have jobs, right? And all of us, like some of us work from home already. Some of us work from an office. So like to have everyone together For X amount of time. Yeah, Yeah. you drive each other crazy sometimes. But like just having that family time as well was like something that was huge. Yeah. Yeah. Where can people find out more about Utopia? And if there's a way to connect with you, maybe like how can people do that?
1: Definitely. So we are on social media, on Instagram, Utopia. Um, With with a Y. With a Y, yeah. Y-U-T-O-P-I-A. We have our website, utopia.care. You can check all our services, everything that we provide. Uh, There's the WhatsApp number there. You can directly contact us or call us. And um, if you have any other concerns, you can definitely also email us. But... Any way or another, we're here for you.
0: Perfect. I highly recommend all you listeners to go and check out Utopia. Mainly for me, it's 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 the blood work that really was crucial to understand what's going on in my body. And again, like I consider myself someone who's healthy, but I went in and Joel was like, "Hey, maybe we should do a stool test to test for some additional things here." Uh, something that I'm yet to do. <laughs> I'm very reluctant to do it for whatever reason, but. Um, go and check it out. Dr. Joel is like excellent at, at talking you through um, your lifestyle to help understand, you know, what's going on in your body and uh, and prescribe, you know, very very impactful supplements and not just medicine as uh, as a result of all this. Is there anything else you you want to add before before we say goodbye?
1: I guess um, just saying to anyone who's listening that As you said, you don't have to actually be sick to come and see us. Uh, Even if overall you feel you're healthy or doing everything right, there's no harm in just coming to see where you're actually at and to see how things can be improved. And of course, a sustainable and realistic way, because this is how it's supposed to be.
0: Totally. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank
1: you.